for millennia, there have been endeavors to paint portraits of a man named Jesus from Nazareth. One of the first ones uh, painted was in a catacomb in Rome in the fourth century, known as the Commodilla Catacomb of Christ. Another is known as the Christ Pantacore. It's one of the most famous ones um, in ancient times, painted this one around the sixth century in modern-day Egypt. Famous painters such as Rembrandt also have attempted to depict Jesus in his famous portrait, The Head of Christ, in 1648. And in 1940s, and this is probably the most common one, Warner Salmon produced the most largely distributed portrait of Jesus. Your grandma probably had this hanging up in the house somewhere, right? Um, this is crazy. This portrait, in various forms, not just as a portrait, but like cups, pens, magnets, has been distributed over 500 million times. So this is probably the most familiar portrait of Jesus. <clears throat> and each of these is an artist in different ways and with different mediums and in different styles trying to paint a portrait of Jesus. Some of those are a lot more accurate than others. I'm talking about that one from the 1940s, right? But each of them with a similar goal. Each of them painting how they saw Jesus. Now, all, although all of them look different and try to achieve different things, they're all painting the same reality. Jesus of Nazareth. You see, we've been in a, a series as a community entitled The Story of God, where we've been journeying through the whole story of the scriptures in six acts. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, the church, and new creation. It has been our endeavor to kind of do a sweeping through of the whole story of the scriptures in just six weeks. And today, we come upon the person around whom all of this is organized, the apex of human history, the one who the whole story orbits around, this man named Jesus from Nazareth. To tell the story of Jesus, we open to the New Testament to a genre called the Gospels. Now, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all ancient biographies of Jesus. Each of these telling the story of Jesus a bit differently, highlighting different key moments, starting in some different places, and even rearranging the order of some events, all to tell the story of Jesus. The Gospels are literary portraits of Jesus to show how the whole story of the Bible culminates in him. Now, why are they called the Gospels? Well, if you remember, and if you've been here for any amount of time, you know the word gospel is what in Greek? Anyone? Euangelion. Let's go. Right? Literally meaning good news. Now, the Christians hijacked this word from Rome and other military leaders because euangelion, good news, is like uh, what would happen when a leader has taken new land or a conquest has been developed or a new Caesar comes into place. Somebody would come announcing euangelion, good news, to a city or a people. And the Christians have taken this word to say, we have message of a new king, bring about a new kingdom and a new message. It is euangelion, good news. Mark begins his gospel, his euangelion, this way. The beginning of the euangelion, the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The good news is the coming of the kingdom of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we will explore this as we go on. Now, quick note about the Gospels. We have to understand when we read the Gospels, we have to understand what the Gospel authors are doing. What they are not doing is giving exact videotape footage sequence of the life of Christ. If you have that mentality, you're going to have difficulty with some of the placements of the stories and different arrangements of how the stories are told, etc. That's not what the gospel authors are doing. The gospel authors are trying to tell the story of Jesus through each in their own creative lenses. Now, 
This is not to say that everything in the Gospels did not happen. Absolutely, I'm not saying that at all. But imagine if we got like uh, Scorsese, Spielberg, George Lucas, and the guy who wrote The Notebook, I forget that guy's name, to all tell the story of Jesus. Each of those directors would be pulling key moments from his life and putting it into film, right? Scorsese's would probably be like more dark and cynical. The, the, the notebook guy would be like lighthearted and on the feet or whatever, right? It, Jesus would be like ridiculously handsome in the footage, I'm sure. But each of these directors, right, would be attempting to tell the same story just from different angles. And that's essentially what the gospel authors are trying to do. Each of them have different functions and goals, but all of them are doing one central thing. They're telling the story of Jesus. All of them taking true and real parts of his life, but just placing them in the story at certain moments to paint this portrait of Christ. Think of each gospel author as one of those painters, and every word is a stroke of the brush painting the face of Christ. That is what they're doing. Now, each of their faces might look slightly different, but all of them telling the same story of the same man, Jesus. Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen, uh, who wrote this marvelous book called The Drama of Scripture, says this. The Gospels are not like modern biographies. They do not try to give a precise chronological record of the events of Jesus' life. Rather, each of the Gospel authors shines the light of the good news on a particular historical situation. Selection, uh, selections of events from the eyewitnesses' stories of what Jesus said and did. Since the arrangement of the Gospels is not simply chronological, but more episodic and thematic, and since gospels, the gosp each Gospel differs from one another in many ways, it is difficult simply to narrate the story of Jesus. Here's the big idea, guys. Each of the Gospel authors are storytellers who are given the task of telling the story of Jesus. Each takes different parts of his life to tell the story, but there's central moments all of them share, and there is... No way to tell the story without sharing in these central moments. Now, some of you might be like, this might be a new paradigm for some of you, and that might be kind of causing a little bit of worry. However, the Bible is super honest that this is what they did. Think about how John ended his gospel when he said, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were to be written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that could be written. John is clear here. There was stuff on the cutting room floor. There were things that we left out because there's no way to tell everything that Jesus did. It is quite literally an impossible venture. Now, these gospels are literary portraits of Jesus. And so all week long, or last two weeks rather, I've been trying to think about how to tell this story. Like the gospel authors, I feel all this pressure to summarize the life of Jesus in about 40 minutes or so. And so it's safe to be said there's a lot left on the cutting room floor here. But I want to uh, tell this story in six movements. And the, the six movements um, that we're going to be doing this in is through uh, Jesus' baptism, through um, his, I'm sorry, I'm trying to find it here, guys. Through his, we'll start with his baptism and we'll go from there. I had the list somewhere here. I apologize. But we begin our story at the end of the story with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then we'll jump back through the story looking at these six key moments. So we begin at the end. Luke 24, starting in verse 13, says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing them. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in here in these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth? They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us when they went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was still alive. 
Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it as the woman had said, but they didn't see Jesus. We begin the story of Jesus at the end of his time here on earth. Jesus has been crucified. It is three days later, and we jump into the story of these two disciples. We know one of their names, Cleopas. The other one goes unnamed. A lot of Bible scholars believe that this is a husband and a wife making their way down on the road. And they're walking away from Jerusalem, disappointed, downcast, heartbroken. You see, they had put their hopes in the reality that Jesus was the one they were waiting for, but their hopes have been let down. Notice this line, we had hoped he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. If you're, there's, if you're these two on the road to Emmaus, you've been immersed in the story we've been telling over the last several weeks. You see, you have waited and longed for this one called the Messiah, the one who would come down from the line of David and rule as Israel's king, overthrowing all her enemies, that this Messiah would be a high priest who would stand in the gap for his people and reconcile them again to God. He would be a prophet just like Moses who would speak God's truth. And Jesus seems like he's the guy, but he's murdered. Jesus is crucified on the cross. And so with them, their hopes are crucified. And all of their longings were, could he be the Messiah? Now, the word Messiah in Hebrew is the word Mashiach. Can you say Mashiach? At the end, you got to act like you got something stuck in the back of the throat. You know, Mashiach. And in Greek, it's the word Christos, where we get Christ. So, to be very clear, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? He wasn't born to Mary and Joseph Christ. You know what I'm saying? Christ is a title given to Jesus, Christos. Now, it means that's Messiah in both Hebrew and Greek. Now, the word Messiah simply means the anointed one. More literally, it's one who's anointed with oil, which if you could pick all kinds of nicknames for yourself, that's probably not top 10 on your list, right? Is the one who's been covered with oil, right? It's, it seems very strange to have that kind of a nickname. But if you are following in the story, the Mashiach or the Christos or the Christ is the one you have been waiting for. Now, I want you to carefully notice the last part of their sentence, right? There's the, we had hoped, but they said that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Now, remember, the Bible is ancient Jewish meditation literature. It was just a fancy way of saying, you're expected to have been sitting in this story your whole life. It is not meant for like a full read-through and then you wash your hands and you're done. You've read the Bible, you've done the task. But rather, it is a book that you're meant to spend your life marinating in and every time you go through the story, new things reveal themselves. When you hear the phrase that he would be the one to redeem Israel, if you are steeped in the story, our, my fellow Bible nerds will realize that that word redeem is drawing your imagination all the way back to the story of Exodus. The people of God had been in this same situation before. They had been enslaved under the oppressive empire of Egypt. And the first time, the first time this word redeem is ever used is here in that story where God frees them. Exodus chapter 6 verse 6 says this, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke or bondage of the Egyptians. I will free you from, bring, from being slaves to them. Notice this line, and I will what? redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. This has been the story of your people if you're these two disciples on the road. And you were hoping that Jesus would be like Moses, Caesar would be like Pharaoh, and Rome would be like Egypt, and God would deliver them out of there. This one who would redeem Israel became known as the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Christos. And as Jesus, and, and you thought Jesus just might be him. And this movement is gaining traction. 
Jesus is setting the oppressed free, and he's healing people, and he's feeding people, and he's teaching the word of God with authority you have never heard before. But just as it seems the movement is finally gaining steam, he's murdered. And with him, your hope. And so you are preparing to leave town after three days of mourning. And just before you leave town, you hear word that some women had, had seen angels at Jesus' tomb saying he had risen. And so to verify the source, more people go. But when they go, they don't see Jesus. And so these two disciples leave disappointed, hopes crushed. Now, Luke is a literary genius. And there is so much layered here in this story to the words in the in the story of Emmaus. But Luke is making a profound statement here. You see, you're at the end of Luke's gospel. You're in the final little portion of the story. And you see two people walking away from the UN Galleon about Jesus. Why? Because they didn't see him. How did they miss Jesus? Well, according to Luke, there's two ways you miss Jesus. One, you're looking in the wrong place. Two, he doesn't look like how you wanted him to. First, looking for him in the wrong place. Where did they go looking for Jesus? In the grave, among the dead. But the news was he has risen. So why would you be checking where dead people are? Why is that where you would be looking? Many of us miss Jesus, not realizing we're looking for him in all of the wrong places. But you guys know, because you've just read the story, where is Jesus as they're walking away? He's right there next to them on the road of disappointment. I have a sense this morning that maybe a few people here are disappointed with Jesus. And maybe, maybe you've been walking away from him. Because maybe you've missed him. Maybe it feels like you've been searching for him and he has yet to be found. The gospel of Luke comes to you this morning saying, maybe you've been looking in the wrong place. Maybe you were looking in a church service or a book or a podcast or a song, but he's actually right next to you on the road of disappointment. Maybe you're frantically searching for Jesus, but Jesus is already right next to you. The second way that we miss Jesus is by um, looking for the wrong one. So, looking, uh, thinking of Jesus looks some way, but he actually looks somewhere another another way. So, um, think of those portraits that we just saw a few moments ago. Now, recently, some forensic anthropologists have gathered and collected skulls from Hebrew men from the time of Jesus, and they've made a composite of the average Jewish male in the time of Jesus, and this is what he would have looked like. That is what the average Jewish male looked like in Jesus' time. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that's Jesus. What I am saying is that chances are that's probably what he looked like. Now, Think about the most famous portrait of Jesus that probably hung in your grandma's kitchen, and we're going to put those side by side. How vastly different are those? On one hand, Jesus is like this gorgeous European man with this, like, Garnier Fruities commercial hair, right? And on the other one, he looks very human. Now, I don't think anyone's going to take the left snapshot and put it up in the kitchen, right, as a way of saying that's probably what Jesus looked like. But here's the thing. Many of us are looking for a different version of Jesus, a different portrait of Jesus, a Jesus who looks like us, who votes like us, who thinks like us, who loves like us, who hates all the people we hate and loves all the people we love, tells the stories that we really appreciate, and the ones that are kind of weird or off or confront us, we kind of push those off to the side. That's our Jesus. And that Jesus is always letting us down. Why? Because he's just like me. He's just like you. But would we see the real Jesus? Not who we want him to be, not who we think him to be, but who he presents himself to be.
Luke is making an incredible claim that you could have read the whole story and still miss Jesus. That you could have journeyed through the whole thing and still be walking away disappointed because you're looking for him in the wrong places and he looks nothing like you thought he would. Now, (laughs) my gosh, we can miss Jesus because we are looking for him to be who we want him to be, not letting us show who he is on his own terms. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. So they tell Jesus, basically, they're disappointed in him, not knowing it's him, and are walking away downcast and disappointed. And Jesus is like, man, you guys missed it. You're slow of heart to believe what the whole story has been saying the entire time. Jesus is saying, I am the story fulfilled. I am the story realized. I am the central thing in which this whole story orbits around. And then he goes through the scriptures saying, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me. Now, to be a fly on the wall for that would be such a gift. But he explains to him, he explains to them who he is through the story. Now, we want to see Jesus, not how we see Jesus or how we want to see Jesus, but who Jesus is on his own terms. To do that, six scenes. His baptism, his announcement, his transfiguration, his trial, his cross, and his table. You ready? Okay, three people are ready, 17 people are asleep. Are you ready? All right, then a little bit better. We got to work on that. Jake, get these people fired up after this thing. All right, so his baptism. Now, there's, I wanted to tell the story of his birth and then the story when he's at the table and Anna and Simeon are there and they're like, well, I'm the Christ, right? Don't have time. I'm so sorry. So we're jumping to his baptism. Now, Luke 3, and we're going to do all of this through Luke's gospel, which is gangster if you ask me, but Luke 3. When all, the people who were being ba- when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, being Jesus, heaven was opened up, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased. Bit of context here. If you're following Luke's narrative, there's two births you've been paying attention to. First is the birth of John, who later becomes known as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And he's a strange guy, if we're a little bit honest. The story tells us that he lives in the wilderness. He doesn't wear clothes like normal people. He wears camel's hair, which if you're asking me, among the clothes probably has to be the itchiest and most comfortable, uncomfortable. And his diet is rather strange, and he eats locusts and honey. So going out for a bite with John the Bee is not really something you're super stoked about, right? If crickets <laughs> and honey is what's on the table. This is John. And John's been given a message that he's proclaiming from the wilderness that he's come to prepare the way for the Christos, for the Messiah, the Mashiach. And we've been following another birth, the birth of this, this poor Jewish family, the birth into this poor Jewish family with a man named Jesus. Now, when I say the name Jesus, chances are Jesus of Nazareth is what comes to mind. But Jesus was a super common name in his time. And so just the name Jesus wouldn't be resonating with you so much because so many Jewish people named their kids Jesus because the name means the Lord saves, Yahweh saves. And they were longing for this waiting one of Jesus. So Jesus' name is common among the people, but he is not common. He is not like anyone else. And so you've been following these two stories of John and Jesus. Now, John had begun a renewal movement in this message where he's calling people to repentance. After they would repent and prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah, they would be baptized. Now, we do not have time to go through the imagery of going through the waters in baptism as like 
a key element in the whole biblical story, but I just want to like invite you, trace that theme through. Trace the theme of going through the waters to be saved, right? For example, think of Noah going through the waters to be saved. Think of Moses in a ark of sorts going through the waters to be saved. Think of the Exodus. They go through the waters to be saved. Joshua and the entering the promised land are going through. Guys, come on. Moving on. Jesus gets baptized, and when he does, something incredible happens. Notice it says, as he is praying, he gets revelation, or people get revelation of his identity. The Spirit rests upon Jesus. This is drawing all the imagery back to Genesis 1, right? Who was hovering over the waters in Genesis, in the creation story? The Spirit what kind of creature can hover over things? It's not like a woolly mammoth or an anteater. It is a bird, something with the capacity for flight. Here in Genesis 1, we're getting this image already of the spirit as dove. And it is this imagery that we see resting upon Jesus. So in the same way the spirit hovered over the waters to bring about creation, the spirit is hovering over the waters to bring about new creation in Jesus. Come on, dude. You got, you, oh, I'm the only one excited about this, apparently. Come on. Literary genius. So this is all, and this is, and the biblical authors want you to see this as Jesus' anointing. It's coming over Jesus and covering him. Now, there are three types of people who would be anointed um, in the Old Testament. Priests, prophets, and kings. All three of these individuals are are required to have the power of the Spirit on them to do the task they've been given to do. Priests are God's intercessors. They stand between God and man, representing man to people and representing God to, representing man to God and God to people. And they would offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. They are this intermediary. And often in the story of the scriptures, they also function as a sacrifice. More on that later. Next is uh, uh, prophets. There are all these people that God raised up throughout history to speak God's truth to his people. People like Moses, people like Elijah. Again, we'll go to them later. And then there's kings, rulers like David who were given the responsibility of leading God's people. All three of these people, when they were called to office, guess what would happen? There would be a ceremony where they would take oil a sign and symbol of God's presence and life, and pour it all over their body as a way of saying this person is anointed, is Christos, is the anointed one to do the task. Brief little story. When David is tempted to kill Saul when he's hiding in the cave, and all his men want to rally him to do so, do you remember what David tells him? No. He says, you're never to lay a hand against the Lord's Christos, anointed one, Saul even though he's been trying to murder David this whole time. That's for free. You could just take that and do with that what you want. But that's not the only thing that happens, is that Jesus is anointed. But in that moment, just so you don't miss what's happening here, a voice speaks. Now, what does the voice say? This is my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. With him, I am well pleased. Now, you might just think, that's super sweet. Thank you for saying that, right? Jesus just had a tough time in the wilderness. I'm sure that meant a lot, right? Except that this phrase is layered with Easter eggs. This is my beloved son. This is Psalm 2. Psalm 2 opens up with the same theme. This is my beloved son. We are to see Jesus as the new David coming to rule and reign on God's behalf. It is Psalm, read Psalm 2. It is pulled right from it. This is my beloved son. Oh, this is my son, whom I love, my beloved. I'll give you a little, this is a little easier. Think about a story in Genesis where there's a son who is beloved. He almost gets sacrificed. Who is this son? Isaac. When it says, this is my beloved son, this is the son whom I love, you're to think of Isaac, the son who is going to be laid down as a sacrifice. 
with whom I am well pleased. This is all um, imagery of Isaiah 42, the servant. Isaiah 42, God describes the servant who will come to, to serve and to bless God's people, and he will be the blessed one, and with him, God is well pleased. It is clear what the Father is doing here. He says, Jesus is the one from Psalm 2. He is the better David. Jesus is the sacrifice who's going to come and stand in the gap, the son who will be sacrificed. Jesus is the servant who's come to lay down his life on behalf of my people. This is his identity. And this is what's happening in the transfiguration. So here at Jesus' baptism, we are to see this is the Christos. This is the Mashiach. This is the promised one. Jumping ahead in the story, Jesus goes to preach in his hometown. Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He is anointed. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. And he went to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. And on Sabbath, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has done what? Anointed me to proclaim uh, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled the scroll up, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. So much happening here, guys. I don't have time to get into it all, but here's what we can do. Jesus steps onto the scene. He takes this scroll from Isaiah talking about the servant, the one who would come to set God's people free. And he reads it. And he goes to sit down, and everyone's like waiting for him. He's like, oh, yeah, by the way, this just happened. Right? Thanks. Now, Jesus is saying so much there. And how do you think the people react? They fall down, and they worship, and oh, my God, the Messiah is the Messiah. Wrong. They say, isn't this Mary's son? Didn't we see this kid grow up? Don't we know his whole, and he's got that sketchy story about who his dad really is, right? Like him? And he's just a carpenter. He's not a king. He's not him. His dad are stonemasons. They, they made our kitchen table. Him? It was such an audacious claim, and they were so angered by what Jesus had said. You know what they try to do? They try to push him off a cliff and kill him. That's their response to Jesus' proclamation. So they didn't see it as like, well, that was a weird sermon. They saw it for exactly what it was. Jesus said, I am the Mashiach. I am the anointed one. I'm the one who was promised. Now, um, the rest of the Gospel of Luke shows Jesus doing exactly what he said he's going to do here. Letting the, having the blind see, setting the oppressed free, healing people, preaching about the kingdom of God. This is all what he is doing here, is he is proclaiming that he is the one who has been, been waiting, we've been waiting for. Um, also, what's happening here is Jesus saying is that he is the king who is bringing about the kingdom. He says, I am the one who's bringing about the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee, that he has the power and the authority to set those free. We're running out of time. The next thing in Jesus' life is the transfiguration. So, Luke 9. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him on a high mountain to pray. And after he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became full awake, and they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus, uh, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to them, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I love this commentary. 
He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they, as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found Jesus was alone, and the disciples kept, them to this, kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone about what they had seen. So much happening here. One, I love Peter's response to this. So they're just chilling with Jesus on a mountain, which they did often. Jesus went often alone to mountains to pray. And he brings his disciples on with him. And I love that they're like passing out, basically. The text says they're very sleepy. Like Jesus is like doing his thing and they're nodding off in the corner. It's a long day, cut him some grace. You know, give him some grace. And then suddenly, Jesus starts to radiate like a flash of lightning. Do with that what you want. This is all drawing on imagery of Daniel 7, saying that the ancient one, God himself, shines like lightning, and now Jesus is doing that same thing. That's just for kicks. And, and moving forward, then a cloud appears. All throughout the scriptures, clouds are pictures of God's glory. It was a pillar and a cloud that led him through Exodus. It was a cloud that appeared over the tabernacle when God's presence came to rest on it. This is all imagery that this man is not a man merely. He is God incarnate in the flesh. And Peter says, let's make some tents, right? That's what he says. He's like, we're going to build you three tabernacles. Now, you could get really hard on Peter and be like, idiot. Like, what are you thinking, bro, you know? But all throughout the story, when God's presence shows up, where was it always? In the tabernacle, in the temple, and so Peter is doing the only logical thing he could do when he encounters the presence of God is let's build you a house. Not realizing that God's presence was about to be unleashed on the world and no longer confound to simply a tabernacle. And then, just in case you were kind of confused, a voice appears again from above. It is the Father who reminds you, this is my son, with whom I well pleased. But the last part changes. It says, listen to him. Where have we heard this before? Well, if you're steeped in the story, this is what Deuteronomy 18 says. Moses is about to leave the people of Israel. He's been an incredible leader, not without flaws, but he's been a great leader. And he has been one who has been seen as a prophet, one who speaks God's truth to God's people. Verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must do what? Listen to him. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I have commanded them. So all throughout the story, you're looking for a prophet like Moses who will speak God's truth, and your responsibility is to listen to him. The voice from above is saying, this is the prophet that you've been waiting for. This is the new Moses. Now, Jesus came as a carpenter, but he had set that profession aside to take up a new profession, he was an itinerant rabbi. In fancy language, he was a street preacher who roamed city to city proclaiming the UN Galion, the good news, the kingdom of God has come. Jesus came as a teacher. There's all this dialogue in John as well about Jesus saying the very things the Father wants him to say. He's this one who is going to lead God's people out of the slavery of lies into the freedom that truth brings. And didn't Jesus say something kind of like that? That you shall know the truth and it shall do what? Set you free. That's free too. I'm just giving out a bunch of freebies today, guys. Moving on to Jesus' trial. So Jesus has been arrested and he's standing before the, standing before the Jewish leaders. It says this in verse, uh, chapter 22, starting in verse 66, says this. At daybreak, the council of elders, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. 
if you are the Mashiach, the anointed one, the Christos, tell us, Jesus answered. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But check this line out. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They asked him, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. So gangster. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it with his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes paying taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Mashiach, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, said Jesus. Oh, dude, we could spend weeks here. I'm not going to do that now. But two things I want you to see. One, Jesus never, for some reason, never claims the title Mashiach, or very rarely does. He allows others to say that of him, but he doesn't really announce that himself. But what is the name he's always calling himself? The Son of Man. We talked about this a bit last time we gathered. But Daniel 7, Daniel sees this vision of a human one. That's what Son of Man means, a human one, who will be brought up on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, to Yahweh himself, and he will be seated at the throne at his right hand, fulfilling humanity's calling to co-rule with God over creation. This Son of Man will be lifted up, and he'll be exalted and put on a throne. Jesus is where right now? He's on trial, about to be crucified. And he tells the religious leaders... They're like, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? And he says, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe me? He says, but here's what you'll know. From this moment on, you will see the son of man be seated with God in the heavenly realms. This shouldn't be a new, what is the next thing that happens to Jesus in the story? He's crucified. I want you to think about the imagery that's used of Jesus' crucifixion. And think about specifically the things that he's given. He's given a crown of thorns, and he's given a robe of shame, essentially. And they are mocking him, saying, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Messiah, pull your down. And he's lifted up, not onto a seat, but onto what? A cross. Jesus is saying, his death is his inauguration as king. And the way that God has come to rule over creation is not as a king in high places, but as the lamb slain for the world. That's the fundamental claim about King Jesus and his kingdom. He's come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life ransom for many. This is who Jesus is. Now, moving right along, running out of time. The cross. Luke 23, then the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's anointed one, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him, and they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a notice written above him which said, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there with him hurled insults at him. Aren't you the anointed one, the Mashiach? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Jesus said, truly unto you, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Everybody there doesn't see Jesus, but one person does. Is it a priest who has spent his life in the text waiting for Jesus? Is it a prophet who's there to communicate God's truth? Is it Pilate? Is it the chief priest of the time? Who is it that sees Jesus? It is a rebel. 
most people translate these guys as thieves, which is fine, but the idea really has more behind it, a rebel. You wouldn't get crucified for stealing a necklace. You'd get crucified for launching a mutiny against the king. And that's exactly what Jesus was accused of, and that's exactly what these men were doing. But he realizes that Jesus is innocent. Now, isn't that interesting? The only person who sees Jesus is this rebel. Luke is saying again, it's easy to miss Jesus if you're not really looking for him. You see, that man understood what all the other people didn't understand, that Jesus was doing the very thing he said he came to do and the very thing the story says he would do. Now, there's this beautiful line here I have to talk about. Tim Mackey's pointed this out in the sermon that we've listened to together as a community. But he has this famous line, today I say you will be with me in paradise. When the when when uh, Hebrew scholars translated this into uh, Greek, they chose the, the the word is paradiso in Greek. But in Hebrew, when they translated this into Hebrew, um, this Aramaic text into Hebrew, they chose the word garden. That's what it means. Paradise means garden. So Jesus tells the thief, "Today you're going to be with me in the garden." All the way, drawing back. To Genesis 1. Today, I'm bringing about new creation, and you're going to join me in the garden. We don't have time to stay there, but my gosh, so good. Now we come back to the story we started with, the two walking with Jesus on the road. Jesus, I love that he did this. He pretends like he's going further. All right, guys, this is where we part ways. It was fun opening up the scriptures with you guys. I'll see you later. I guess I'll go now down this road over here somewhere else. Unless someone was going to, you want to come with us? Sure, I'll go with you. Let's go, you know, right? No, please, Jesus, come, come, come with us. So, right, they come, and they get settled, and they're so, this guy's like, knows the Bible really well. You know, we should talk with him a little bit more. And uh, you hungry? Yeah, I could use a bite, you know. Jesus had dinner with us like this. Oh, really? Tell me more about it. Yeah, yeah, he would get this bread, and oh, like this bread, yeah. And then Jesus gives thanks, and he breaks the bread, and he gives it to him. And what happens? Their eyes are opened. They didn't see the whole time, but suddenly now they see. That is in, it wasn't in the Bible study, but it was in the breaking of bread that they see Jesus. And Jesus, in Jesus' fashion, then just disappears. Gone. And they say to each other, did not our hearts burn when he told us the story? when he explained the scriptures to us. Luke ties up a few bows there as Jesus appears to his disciples and ultimately ascends, but that's, that's the last part of the book. The story of Jesus calls you to do something. It calls you to come to a decision. What will you do with this man, Jesus? What will you do with his life? What will you do with his claims? It's clear who Jesus thought he was. Who do you think he is? Some people think of Jesus merely as like a good teacher. Like we just, you know, follow Jesus' things and the things he says. Because, I mean, it's, it's good pragmatic wisdom, you know. Love people, be nice, forgive people who wronged you. Like, yeah, that's all good. Except that's not the bulk of what Jesus said. Jesus came to say... <laughs> I'm the son of man, the one who's going to be enthroned next to God. So he's not exactly just a teacher, you know. And, and some of us are, are fine with Jesus being, you know, God somewhere out there, you know. But, but is he Lord over your life? You know, it's easy to let Jesus be Jesus somewhere far off. But is he who he says he is to me and the decisions that I make and the way that I live my life? And how I view myself and how I view him. I feel like there's a lot of people today who have a picture of Jesus. And Jesus has been a lot of things for you. Maybe he's been a help to you. Maybe he's been someone you talk to occasionally when you come to pray. Maybe he's been somebody that you uh, believe in generically because that makes you feel better. But your picture is distorted. Jesus looks like how you want him to look. 
But to take Jesus on his own terms is to come to a place of decision. What will I do with this man? Because either he's not who he said he is, and to quote C.S. Lewis, then he's either a liar or he's crazy, or he is who he says he is. Which the only response to that is to fall on your face and call him Lord. The gospel authors present you with that choice. What will you do? What will you do? We're going to enter into a time of response right now. At Zion, we're a community who responds to the things that God is doing among us. And so I want to ask you to stand with me if you're able. We often think that responding is merely agreeing in our minds. Yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm for that. We think responding means just believing the right things. You know, oh, now I understand. I'll get rid of that painting in my house. Right? Response is a whole life surrender to God. That is what he demands. That is what he requires if he is Lord. He is not merely a head nod or a change in theology. He requires worship. And so I want to call our community to respond. And, 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 and here's kind of what I'm sensing. I'm sensing that there may be people in the room right now who realize you've missed Jesus. And maybe not entirely. Bits and, bits and pieces you've gotten right, but you haven't seen the whole hymn not the way he's presented himself to be. I want to call you to respond. And the way I'm going to call you to respond is here on this side of the room, I just want you to come forward, if this is you, if you've missed Jesus, and I just want you to put your hands open like this as a sign and symbol to God saying, let me see you for who you really are. And what we're going to do is we're going to have come people pray that prayer over you. That would become a reality in your life. And right now, some of you might be worrying well, that's kind of weird. Why would we do that, etc., etc.? Remember what I said. If he is who he says he is, this is the only logical response, is to respond in this way. And then I have a sense there's people who will realize today that you have actually never seen him. That if you were to close your eyes and imagine the face of Jesus, you are grasping at air. You don't know what he's like. And you want to come to know him. And right now, God is coming to you by way of his word. And he's showing you Jesus. And you are being compelled by him. I want to invite you to respond in the same way. By coming to this side of the room with your hands open, saying, I don't see Jesus, but I want to. And I'm starting to see him, and I want more. If that's you, I want to invite you to respond. And the worship team's going to play. And I want to... I want to invite us into the only natural response to seeing Jesus is worship. And it should be marked by joy and celebration and repentance and tears and all of it. For he is worthy.